humanitarian. System change is often spoken about, but it's rarely achieved in the humanitarian sector. One of the most ambitious attempts at redefining the humanitarian business model and developing a new humanitarian economy is the START network. START is a little more than a decade old now, and it has over the years been an incubator for new ideas and new ways of working. The driving force behind the network has until recently been Sean Laurie, and he's this week's guest on Humanitarian. Sean tells a story about how difficult it is to achieve sustainable change, just how many sandbags you have to drop into the river before it changes its course. He also tells a story of how the current humanitarian system stifles innovation and quickly forces the river back to its old bed. Sean is a humanitarian entrepreneur, and the way he speaks of that experience is an important nuance of this conversation. As a sector, we are not short of brilliant ideas of what to do and how to achieve our goals, but we are short of people who truly can implement new innovative ideas, who have the courage to challenge the status quo and really make a difference. Sean is one of those people. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sean Laurie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lars Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. We have known each other for, I think, more than 10 years now. Um, and you are legendary as the founder of the Start Network, one of the most dynamic and innovative parts of the humanitarian system over the past years. And it would be great if you could, if we think of you as a, let's say, a humanitarian superhero, what's your origin story? Where did this thing come from? How did you get the idea? And how did you go about starting the Start Fund? Well, it wasn't my idea to begin with. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not the founder. There are a, a number of British humanitarian directors from different NGOs who were meeting in pubs in London uh, in around 2009, 2008, after the, after the financial crash, when DFID was, you know, the British government was reducing its overhead costs and they were writing bigger and bigger checks. So they were sending more money to the aggregators, you know, the PricewaterhouseCoopers and the, and the UN pooled funds. And the NGOs weren't getting funds directly anymore. And, and the humanitarians were finding the money was slowing down and uh, there were a lot more conditions tied to it. And it was, and it was, uh, there was less of it, you know, because more of it was being scraped for overheads for these, these aggregating organizations. So they began to meet in pubs to, lament what we would now call the system failure of the response to the, the financial crisis of 2008. Um, and that led them to, to see an opportunity when, um, the, when DFID uh, asked for proposals to strengthen the humanitarian response system. And, and they, they, they saw this opportunity and seized it and, and created a consortium of 15 NGOs, believing rightly that DFID could not refuse an application from the 15 uh, top British NGOs. Um, so, so they got the funding. It was a two-year pilot to uh, you know, explore a number of different uh, ideas. One was an emergency response fund. Another was a really interesting capacity building program that shifted power to uh, uh, local organizations. Another was about logistics strengthening. Um, and uh, they couldn't they couldn't find a, a director for this this effort, um, and that was because there was there was tension inside the consortium. Some just wanted an administrative body that would do the wishes of the big NGOs. Others wanted um, uh, a, a, like a, a center, a secretariat with more agency and more vision. Um, 
and, and so there was they had, they had one attempt that failed to recruit so they went to a headhunting firm and and that's how I found out about it and I joined in September after it had been running for a few months so I, I didn't found it it wasn't my idea but I guess what I was able to do was was to create what it is now by by being in that in that the, the privilege of that position and um, and, and creating opportunities uh, for 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 the network so they pulled you in to implement an idea that was already formed and where they already had the money. So what were you? Were you, the, were you the compromise candidate or were you the solid administrator or were you the ideas man? Why did they pick you? I think that the ones who wanted something bigger than just an administrative secretariat won the debate. So I had been studying at the Humanitarian Futures Program with, with uh, Randolph Kent and, and King's College London for a couple of years and, and had been thinking about uh, the future of the humanitarian aid system and brought those ideas into the interview and, and, and with the headhunter. And, and that's, I think, what, what attracted them to, to, uh, to invite me to, to, to lead the effort. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm no administrator. I, 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 I don't have a lot of patience for, for that stuff, but, but um, uh, they asked me to do it. So I, I guess it was, it was because of the ideas that they, that they asked me to join. Thinking about the future, uh, how um, you know climate change and population growth and and you know population densities and resource management issues would be creating different types of of crises and different types of vulnerability, and and therefore a, a different type of system to respond to that and 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 how one would act in in today uh, with, with today's uh, system to create a system that would be effective in the future. You know the theory being that if it takes Theory. I, I don't know whether it's a theory or not, but if it, you know, if it takes time for a super tanker to turn, um, then you need to start working to change a system many years in advance of 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 when that that plausible future comes true. And so, so it was that awareness, I think, that 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 um, attracted the humanitarian directors to to, to work with me. I, I I had some clear ideas about the how you would go about creating a narrative for a different type of system. And so is it, is it fair to say that on one side you have a, a bunch of humanitarian directors and leaders in the NGOs truly worried about their immediate financial situation, uh, trying to make sure that they get or maintain the, the slice of the pie that they're getting? And on the other hand, you have this long-term need to clearly transform the way in which the business operates. And those two things are brought into the Start Network from the beginning. Is, 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 that, a, is that the fundamental tension which were there? Yeah, I, that's fair. You know, originally the, the Start Network was an aggregator to enable DFID to write one big check that would be dispersed amongst many organizations. And that absorptive capacity is interesting to bureaucrats because it's it doesn't cost that much money to write a big check. It costs the same amount of money to write a big check or a small check. So, so the NGOs got together and created a, a, a pipeline that could take big checks. But of course, that scale creates many interesting opportunities. And, and, and you know, I, I think anybody who, who is in that position it's it's a great privilege because you you see uh, all the all these possibilities from from you know working at scale with a, with a population of organizations. 
And so t- talk us through the journey. You, 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 they cut you quite a big check. And you have an ambitious agenda in terms of not just being an, an administrator for DFID, but actually transforming things. And, and so what do you do? How do you maneuver that space? How do you use the privilege you have? Well, it was a two-year pilot uh, that was all defined, you know, in usual project ways, every, everything was, was defined. And so I was required to be an administrator and a manager um, to uh, generate the proof and the evidence that um, NGOs working together in this way um, could, could create value. Um, and it was very successful from the, from the, very, you know, from the very first months. Um, and it was independently evaluated three times and, and you know, earlier, faster and cheaper than other pooled funding mechanisms. And, uh, but then two years into the pilot, uh, well, actually a year into the pilot, we were informed they weren't going to renew our funding. Um, and this was not an evidence-based decision. It was a politically based decision um, because the government of the day was trying to um, get the, the, the 0.7, percent GDP aid commitment um, enshrined in law. And there was a big battle between the different wings of, of the, the, part, the political party in power at the time. And so the Secretary of State and DFID wanted to control decisions about humanitarian aid funding in order to maximize the, the, the kind of the, the media profile of the development budget. And this would placate uh, the skeptics about foreign aid. And so the START fund at the time um, had delegated authority. So, so we could make decisions about when the funding was spent. And this, this wasn't useful for the minister in charge of DFID at the time. And so they decided not to renew our funding. And this created a huge crisis. Um, and, and there were some who said, well, that was, that was fun while it lasted, but let's close this down because it's, it's not going to work. Um, but others, uh, and they were the majority. Said no, this is this is important to keep going. It's it's you know it's it's working. We are providing better value for money to the taxpayer, and we are saving more lives and getting more money to uh, small off the radar crises. Um, so let's fund it ourselves uh, un- until we can figure out what to do. And so that was the that first crisis was was I think the, the critical moment for the Start Network as it stands today because. Me and, and, a, and, a, and a brilliant Dutch woman called Marika Hanjet were given two years of funding to essentially find a new business model. So the argument being, you know, this works, the evidence is unambiguous, and yet at the same time, a political decision killed the funding. So the problem is not the START network. The problem is that we are dependent on uh, Western government funding that itself is dependent on, you know, crazy elections that, 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 that put, you know, different parties in power and when they do, they want to change everything. And, and so that's not a way to build a system. You, you, you can't create a, a safety net uh, with, with, the, with the main funding that is so politically uh, uh, fragile. Uh, so the, the NGO said, fine, let's finish the pilots. And then, you know, you have two years and, and see, see if you can figure out a way of, of getting us the funding. Um, without without going to DFID. And that was very fertile. So we spent two years going around the city of London talking to, you know, financiers and insurance companies. And, and you know, we investigated all these, these, at the time, very interesting alternative business models, loans, impact bonds, 
um, it just we, we generated a whole lot of really interesting possibilities for the NGOs and, and came to the chief executives of the network um, and said, you know, this this is this is this is really interesting. I, I think that that you know we can create a a way for you to provide humanitarian aid um, without being completely dependent on on uh, Western governments. So interestingly, what started out as a way of ensuring that we maintain the slice of the pie from the traditional donor became the beginning of growing a new humanitarian economy, in a sense. Yeah, that's right. Um, and ironically, at the same time, we were we were compiling evidence through all the parliamentary committees. And so we, we reached these two conclusions almost at the, at the same time, or we had we had sort of two conclusions at the same time. One was there are alternative business models that are available that could give NGOs true independence. Because part of this, right, NGOs, every single NGO out there has been created from some expression of agency by you know, a founder or a group of people who, who see an injustice and they wanna do something about that injustice. You look at any single NGO from Save the Children to Oxfam to IRC to CARE to and all, all the big ones and all the small ones too. They, they've all been created by people who have said, you know, this is not right, we have to do something about it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extreme expression of, of independence and agency. Um, but they've all drifted into this position of dependence on, on government funding. And, and, and that government funding is itself dependent on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, uh, an unreliable political process. And so we reached this conclusion where, where we found that, yes, it is possible to have different business models for humanitarian aid that would give NGOs the independence to address suffering when they saw it. But at the same time, the British government changed and they came back to us. They, they put a different person in charge of DFID and they came back to us and, and they, and they um, gave us three years worth of funding. It was, I forget how much it was, 30 million or something. It was, it was quite, a, quite a big number. So, so, that, so, so then we had, we had all these possibilities of alternative ways of, of, of organizing ourselves and financing ourselves. And then we had a, a big check from, from DFID that, that caused us to you know, operate in the same ways. So you, you, you spend, you get through the valley of death in a sense, if you want to talk uh, entrepreneur talk, right? You, you get that initial uh, learning under your belt and you manage to attract new funding at scale. And, and then that funding comes from the original source, comes from the traditional back donor. Would you, would you say that that made gravity set in again? Yes, because our proposal talked about shifting power to local organizations and, and, and creating um, national level uh, you know, groupings of, of organizations. Um, but the civil servants, the bureaucracy in DFID was, was unable to, to, to take that stuff into consideration. It just, it just involved too much uncertainty and, and, too much, and therefore too much risk. But they wanted to, to fund us. And, and so what they ended up doing was, was, was asking for a, a much more traditional pooled fund proposal. Um, so uh, yes, there was this kind of paradox uh, sort of baked into the, the start network from, the, from, from, that, from that sort of second stage. So it, it's, it's really an interesting dynamic, right? You, you get pulled back into the traditional system in a sense, while you're trying to open up to, to other new actors. 
and so wh why do you think that doesn't work? We talk so much about localization these days, and it, 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 uh, there's a lot of genuine interest in really opening up and, and, and decolonizing, some people would even say, the, the humanitarian sector. What, why is it that we, we tend to come back to very traditional ways of working again and again? I wish there was a simple answer. I wish there was one thing that I could point to, but uh, uh, it's it's a multifaceted thing. Systems are are comprised of hundreds, thousands, millions of of forces and interests and dynamics, and 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 uh, you know it's it's it it requires I think a much more explicit strategy to to shift the dynamics of a system um, than than than. Uh, you know, a single a single policy effort or, or a, a, a single thing. So I'm not sure that that answers your question, but maybe try to put it into a concrete context. Give us an example of a time where you you were hoping for something new to happen, and then in the in the end, it actually turned out to be quite a traditional outcome. Well, that first uh, the, 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 after our period of crisis, um, when the the start when when diffid um, provided more funding for the start fund. Um, our proposal uh, had a business plan over seven years where it would involve a, a, you know different uh, sources of, of income and and a network structure and growing it to to something like 200 million uh, pounds in disbursements per year uh, worldwide. Um, but as I said, it, it, it involved too much uncertainty uh, and too much risk for um, the machinery of DFID. And, and here, I mean, it's, it's not about the individual civil servants. Um, it's about the, you know, the, the risk, the risk management processes, the the, the legal, you know, the, the procurement rules. The, I mean, there, there's so many things that are involved in in, in um, that are behind. A, a, a decision um, from a bureaucracy, yes or no, to fund something. So, yes, they funded us, but but no, they didn't buy into a, a bigger vision of, of a you know a significant you know global fund um, with power at the at the local levels. So, so we had to begin with uh, with the start fund administered and controlled from London. And then incrementally over the following years, we were able to nudge and change things. Because seen from the outside, the start network was quite diverse. There were a lot of people and organizations joining from, from throughout the, the global south. It wasn't just a, a British club anymore. But is what you're saying that, that real power never shifted? Well... I mean, shifting power is too amorphous a term. I mean, it's it's rhetorically fantastic. It, it it helps us align behind an idea, but that idea is too amorphous to to enable a system to change. You 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 need you need very specific things. So so, so what we did we we broke down the decision making around the disbursement of funding the start network. So so we we developed this 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 two stage process where where allocations for crises were, were made globally from London first, and then those allocations were made by a dispersed committee from a global perspective. So crisis happens in country A, this process decides how much money would be allocated to that country or to that crisis. And then a group of 
other people um, who, who knew the context from that country, frontline workers would decide which projects would, would be selected. Um, so that, that's how we were able to shift power, if you like, you know, it's, and, and, and there it's, 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 you know, when I, when we talked about shifting power in, in that context, we're talking about who has influence over how the, the, the funding is, is uh, deployed. So did that two-step process you mentioned, uh, did that result in uh, national NGOs from the, the crisis-affected countries getting more money, or was it still the, the core members or the, the founding members of, of the Start Network that got the funding? Uh, well, you have to remember that, that a good proportion of the founding members of the Start Network were partner-based agencies um, who only work through local counterparts. And so, uh, the, 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 from the beginning, the, the START Fund was allocating resources to local organizations who were part of these big families, like the Caritas family or the Act Alliance or the Evangelical Group, you know, this, or, or Action Aids Partners. I mean, there, there, there are lots and lots of local organizations from the beginning that weren't members of the START network, but they were in long-term relationships with, with um, those British organizations who uh, provided the, the administrative cover so for them. what you're describing is, to me, the traditional NGO model, partner-based model, and, and but you would still cut the grant to the to the, the British member, of the, and then they would send it onwards? Or, because is that really shifting power? Is that really changing anything? Yeah, that's right. So, so the, the, the funding would pass through the British organization um, who would hold the risk on behalf of the of the local organization but i guess what i'm what i'm trying to say is that the projects that were selected were based on the perspective of of people in the country um, who were able to uh, evaluate the different uh possible the different options so the influence over which project was selected lay with local people so so you were using the traditional modality for managing the funds but you feel like you truly did decentralize and well it was a step so this is what I mean. it's, it's a step in the right direction right so subsequent steps would be for example to get uh, disaster affected people around the table uh, and and being part of the decision making process to select projects well that's that's shifting power to to uh, as as close to the quote unquote front line as you can get. And so, when you when you think back to that experience, wh which box do you put it in? Do you put it in the putting up window dressing in the echo chamber box or truly disruptive box? Hmm. I mean, uh, those those are pretty. <laughs> those are those are stark. They're good boxes. Those are stark options, but. Yeah, it's 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 it wasn't just window dressing, um, but it wasn't the the fundamental change either. Either that 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 shifting the power would would imply, um, but it's a step in the right direction, and it enables further steps. And so the Start Network now has has more and more uh, local organizations who are full members, and who have passed the due diligence process and and have the rights to 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 take a grant directly. I mean. This is what I mean about hundreds and thousands and millions of interest and forces in a system. You know, it's 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 
it's not just about the desire to shift power. It's 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 you know how you satisfy the risk managers and the lawyers that that you know due diligence has been appropriately conducted and 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 you know what what process of due diligence would satisfy both the lawyers and risk managers and procurement departments and the the, the trustees of the charities who who are holding the risk and also the the people who who know and believe like we do that the system would perform better if power was at the, at the edges and and you stepped down from the start network what uh, one two years ago a year ago and so in hindsight Do do you think that it is possible to have a true transformation of the system as long as traditional backdoor money dominate as much as they do? Do you, do you think the money uh, and and all that comes with them in terms of of due diligence and so on? Do you think that's so stifling that that basically we won't be able to change anything unless we tap into new and different kinds of money? That's a great question. I mean, I I, I think. I think probably both are necessary. You know, in- incremental change, incremental change in the direction of a locally led system is is one strategy um, among several. I mean, this so you know, system change is not easy and, and, and it's not simple. There's not one silver bullet to, to change a system. You, you need to employ, you know, one, one metaphor is um, in is sandbagging. Take for example, you've got a a river and you want to change the course of a river. Um, so you 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 make a big pile of sandbags and, and, and it causes the river to to divert. So each one of those sandbags would be an example of a, of a of an initiative that you would take to try and change the direction of the of a system. And 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 so I think that you know the start fund uh, will continue to innovate incrementally and and uh, continue to shift power to, to the local level. Um, but other things are necessary too. And and one of those other things would, would be to, to look for different business models that that um, don't require uh, the, you know, the, the Western government funding. So in the beginning of the interview, you sort of refused to be uh, made out to be a superhero who was the founder of, of this thing and so on. But Seen from the outside, you looked and walked and talked like the founder of the Start Network. You you were a very dominant uh, character in in the development, and 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 a lot of credit goes to you and your way of going about it, in terms of of enabling a team to deliver the results you delivered. Now, leaving, stepping back from from such a, uh, a f- I'll call it a founder role, Sean, because that that is you may not feel that, but that's what it looked like. To, to me anyways and and so when you stepped down what what did that feel like well it was hard i mean uh you know this was my this was my whole life for for nine years you know it, it's this, this sort of effort um is is completely overwhelming you, you know it's it's you think about it all the time day and night weekends holidays you know when, when you're you're trying to work enough within the system to get the approval of the status quo while at the same time nudge the system in a different way that delivers you know a, a different type of behavior that you know is is necessary it's 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 you know it's it's paradoxical and and it's 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 
it's it's punishing for the individual. You know, the individual gets the innovator gets blamed for for you know not being a good administrator because you know or not being a not being a good manager because you know you don't follow what everybody else does. You don't you don't you know you don't pay attention to the rules or you know it's 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 a it's a you have you have to be resilient. I don't know whether this is what you. I don't know if this makes any sense or not, but but it rings true in many ways to to what I have experienced um, during the time I've been with ACAPS, and and it leads me to my next question, which is, what about founder syndrome? Is that, is that something you thought about? Is that something you felt like, yeah, I have to be careful now? Did did that ever form part of your thinking? Yes. Uh... And so I was with Start for almost nine years, and, and maybe six or seven years in, um, one of one of my friends and colleagues took me aside and said, "Be careful of founder syndrome, um, because I think you're starting to display symptoms of it." Um, and it's hard; it's it's really hard because the status quo is a powerful thing. All of the donor interactions, all of the contracts, all of the you know, meetings, they all promote and reinforce the, the way things are done now. And, and you have to be sort of bloody minded about it. You have to, you have to have a, a different, you know, vision in your mind about how things should work. And, and, and it's not just presenting that vision at a conference and, you know, making a speech and going home. It's, it's like every single thing, every single phone call, every single email, every single, it has to, has to promote that narrative. But, you eventually have to know when to concede. You know, you, you don't win every fight. In fact, you lose more fights than you win. And 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 so there's you know there's the art of compromise and 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 the art of compromise is, is a is a is a phrase. But what am I trying to say? It's like you have to know when to when to compromise, when to when and when to capitulate and, and when to when to fight. And and for a founder, for a leader of this sort of innovative thing, it's really hard to, to, to know where you are and, and, and what you can win and what you can't win, right? So people will look at you from the outside and think that, you know, that's a founder who's got to go. And, and other people will say, you've, or you will say yourself, well, no, I, I, uh, all I'm trying to do is to, is, to, is to make something happen that people want. <laughs> And if I leave, all the sandbags are gone. Yeah, um, yeah. That so that that's a very good question. Um, it's yeah. Will will the sandbags go if 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 you leave? Um, that the, you you do you do have to hold the vision. It's it's true that 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 as the leader of one of these initiatives, um, you're the source of the narrative. Uh, you're you're the you know. If 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 you create the right environment, the ideas come from the environment that you create. The team you hire the right people, you 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 have the right conversations, the innovation the the innovations flourish. Um, but ultimately, the the leader has to be the, you know the the source that frames and 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 directs things and and and. Um, what you know that gets tiring that's you know eventually you you have to think about 
is this about you or is this about the the initiative and 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 so uh for me i i felt that um we had we'd achieved a a certain you know small victory and and i thought that's this is a it was a good moment to to leave and and, and the the network was uh, big enough and there was enough people involved with it and enough people owned the vision um that that it didn't require me to 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 keep pushing So let me ask you, did you get it right in terms of timing? Was that the right time to leave? Should you have done it earlier? Do you wish you were still there? Yeah, sometimes I wish I was still there because, because it's like, you know, it's, my, it's like my family. I, you know, I, you, you, you put so much effort into it. It's, it's, it's like your family, all these, all these hundreds of relationships uh, um, and that they, you know, course some, you, you still stay in contact with people but it's it's, it's different it, it it changes when, when you leave you, you you need to recreate another family somewhere else another professional family so that's hard it, it's it's loss you know you experience loss and that's painful um uh so i miss it um i miss, I miss uh the, the feeling of, of building something and 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 fe the feeling of meaning and 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 you know people working together to try and and, and do the right thing um but also, I, I realized that that you know, start had after nine years, start had achieved a certain milestone. We were able to spin off an independent charity from the host organization, Save the Children, and 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 it was on stable footing. Um, but I realized the next stage would take another ten years, and and I, and I I didn't want to do another ten years. Um, and I and I thought that it was it was a good moment. It was a it was a good milestone, and it was the right time for somebody else to come in uh, with new ideas, new energy, and 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 take it to scale. And and maybe it maybe the, you know, this is this is stuff that you can borrow. One can borrow from commercial startups. It, there there are different skill sets for starting up something and scaling something. Right now, start is at the. The scaling stage, um, so uh, maybe maybe that requires uh, different skill sets. It's it's hard for founders to do to do both. You've now really moved on in the sense that you you have become involved in a new startup called the Key. And what is it you do in the Key? Uh, I'm the chief strategy officer of the Key. It's a it's a commercial firm that's uh, providing real time data to decision makers about COVID nineteen. Um, and those decision makers are in companies or in uh, you know, positions of government authority. And I think that in the, in the name of full disclosure, we should say that I, in my day job with ACAPS, uh, actually work with the key. Uh, you are helping us uh, collect data on COVID-19 and build up a, a global network of key informants. That's right. ACAPS is our, is our first customer. And so now you are really, truly, fully outside the the traditional aid system. You operate on commercial terms. Uh, I know you have an ambition to become a B corporation where, where you sort of subsidize your humanitarian work by working for commercial clients. What, what's the difference in terms of, does it feel more free? Does it feel more real as a startup? What, what is it like? <laughs> um, so a lot of, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, 
was pleasantly surprised that um, many of my experiences and skills that I acquired at the Start Network were transferable in, in, to the commercial world. Uh, many more than, than you know, someone who, who, like me, who's been in the humanitarian sector for 30 years would, would initially believe. There's, there's a lot of transferable skills there. Um, so it, it, some of it feels the same. Um, and it's not necessarily more efficient. These aren't my words, it's somebody else's words. So it's not necessarily more efficient. It's more ruthless. You know, we, 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 um, we're, we're, we're all working for free right now, trying to start a new company and, and we'll continue to, to, you know, we'll, we'll continue to work for free on, on either on, until we run out of money or deplete our savings, or we'll, we'll, we'll get enough customers to, to pay the bills. So it's, it's more ruthless that way. Um, I think the idea is good behind the key. I think that it, it merits success, but it's, uh, it's, do you it's think that that uh, ruthlessness that you talk about, do you think that will enable you to be more successful? That, that that pressure will mean you cut the nonsense and just simply go to scale as quickly as you can? You know what? I, 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 I do. I, I, because I, you know, in, in humanitarian, you know, conferences and meetings, and I, I would meet people from the private sector and they would, you know, they would look at us as, you know, slightly in a perplexed way, how we could spend so much time on process. And, 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 and I, and I also, I mean, I've particularly in the last, in the last month, I've, I've found myself almost constantly, you know, what do I do right now in order to generate value that will bring in money through the door and, and enable this, this company to, to survive. So it, it does create a, a, a focus, um, that that you you don't you don't need to have in, in the humanitarian aid sector. I mean that, that that may not be fair. I mean when I was a frontline aid worker many years ago, I had a focus. Uh, it was is much easier to get stuff done in the field. But but you know leading a, a a global network, it's 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 less focused. And and I, I think that. Uh, working in a commercial startup is is fascinating because it just it, it, it makes you really think about using your time efficiently that's where the ruthlessness comes in you know we have there's there's five of us who are working on this full time plus a, a couple of partner companies and a, and a couple of part-timers and you know we've only got a few months to really pull this off before we all run out of money it is an interesting question right because it it the, the fundamental question is what is holding us back if you look at the amount of effort that goes into wanting to transform the humanitarian sector back from humanitarian reform the transformative agenda the grand bargain the world humanitarian summit you name it high level this high level that it's not like we're not trying so the question is whether it is it is that ruthlessness that you speak to that we're missing whether we are simply too cushioned to cut to the core of what makes a real change. Do you think that's fair? Yes, I do. I mean, I, this, this, the word ruthlessness is, is not mine, it's Paul Currians, my, my friend Paul Currian, who worked with me on, on the, the Start Network and who is also doing his own startup in, in, um, in blockchain. Uh, and so we were talking about this the other day and, and, and 
And he observed that, that he felt that commercial firms are, are not necessarily more efficient, just more ruthless. And I, and I, and I can see where that ruthless is, is, is not a, it's, it's not that, that we're competing with each other. It's, it's that your time is limited and, and you either will survive and succeed or you won't. And, and I think that the humanitarian aid change initiatives yeah, the, the well, I don't know whether it's so simple, Lars Peter. I mean, it, we could be more focused, um, but we're trying to change the system, and the system is comprised of so many dynamics that that, that I mean, maybe what we're doing, or maybe what, what we our, our conversations about system change are are trying to find a small number of things or a magic bullet or a silver bullet that will that will change the system when in fact. There's not one single thing that will change the system. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a number of sandbags that will re-divert the river. And we need to give ourselves permission to make sandbags and just you know try a, a whole number of things. And and together they they will they will uh, nudge the system in a new direction. I sometimes think that the mistake we make is that we think it's about getting a good idea. It's about finding that silver bullet you, you spoke about. But really what we should be thinking about is how to get rid of the bad ideas. Now let's say that the key is a bad idea, God forbid, right? But let's say it is. You'll be gone in a couple of months. That's true. If it's a bad idea, no one will pay us, and so we, we, won't, we won't survive. That's true. So if you had to advise the humanitarian sector based on on your long experience inside the sector and now stepping out and trying to if you want amplify the humanitarian ecosystem with with a private sector partner somehow contributing what what's your key advice for the sector lots of experiments that's that's one thing it boils down to it's it's pretty obvious but but uh you know we, we we spend so much time, we burn so much resources trying to come up with the, the silver bullet idea, as you say, and then argue about who has the mandate to try it and then to find the money. And, and, and then, you know, three years later, it finally, you know, you have your first pilot and, and then you, you, know, you have another two years where you figure out what, you know, what did the pilot produce? And I mean, the world moves much, much faster than that. And, and I, 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 I think that one thing that the, the sector could do more of is just it's just commissioned so many more experiments. And we, we should be running thousands of experiments simultaneously. Our, our, our donors would need to release control to, to allow for these experiments to, to, to run. Or, or our donors would at least need to think about funding in ways that would allow more experimentation. And enlightened ones do, but, but I, you know, my experience is that when you, st you know, the, the, the big traditional humanitarian aid donors won't fund small projects. It's, it's, it's not worth their time to fund small projects. And the big projects just kick in so much risk management that it's impossible to really experiment. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a, a missing cadre of funders that would allow for these experiments to, that, that, that can, you know, try stuff and, and, uh, and, you know, put sandbags in the, in the, in the way of the, the river. Yeah, because I don't think it'll come from a purely commercial source either. Eh? 
No, so this is this is something that we haven't talked about yet. But the you know back at the Start Network when 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 we spent those two years going around the city of London to look at different business models, and then the traditional money kicked in. Um, what we had discovered was uh, ideas for you know commercial business models for humanitarian aid. Now, ultimately, this is this is. You know, ultimately, humanitarian aid is about a one-way tr transfer of resources from people who have money to people who need money in a crisis. So it's not the, it's it's not straightforward to create a a return, but there are ways of creating a a return on humanitarian aid by you know reducing risks that would then reduce the 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 scale of a crisis, um, or um, by making things happen faster and then you know creating savings that can be recouped um, so you, you can use loans for example to, to uh, make intervene in a slow onset crisis and prevent that that crisis from getting serious and then presenting an invoice to duty holders either governments or donors that you've reduced the severity of a crisis and they would pay back the loan plus uh, plus interest or whatever and, 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 a, and a, so that, that there are there are ways of, of financing humanitarian aid that I think can shift the behavior of the system. So this is what we call the new humanitarian economy. Sean, thank you so much for, for all of your energy over the years, for all the sandbags that you put in the river. Some of them are still there. You did change the course of the river and the flow somehow. And I look forward to seeing what comes out of the key. And uh, I know the passion and the energy you bring to every single project you work on. So good luck uh, moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Lars Peter. Thank you for asking. Um, it, it, it's, it's an honor to be part of your podcast. And, and I, I really appreciate the interest. Um, it's an esoteric subject, um, but I think it's a really important one. It's about the rights and the freedom to be For people to choose their path in life and dream Souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks Fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets Ask better questions, pick apart, educate And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate We are, we are searching for more Open up your mind beyond rich or poor For the truth You've been warned, humanitarian. <laughs>